All right, so I left you last time with a very important question. Do you remember what it was? Trick question. There was no question. Let's, uh, there's no question. There was no question. We left off, actually, in uh, question 25, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And we were going to begin to talk about uh, Christ executing that office in humiliation and exaltation. Uh, remember, we said with the priest office, it was uh, easy to see uh, the humiliation and harder to see the exaltation. Uh, and the opposite is true, I think, with the, the king, because kings generally are high and lifted up. And I mean, remember on Monty Python's Holy Grail, how they knew that King Arthur was the king? <laughs> he didn't have scuba all over him, right? The king is the one guy who's uh, kind of clean and, and happy and content. Uh, so let's talk about this here in uh, uh, the New Testament. And then questions 25 and 26. Last time, I had determined that we had kind of, in talking about Christ executing the office of prophet in humiliation and exaltation, priest in humiliation and exaltation, and king in humiliation and exaltation, had kind of discussed to death these questions, where did Christ's uh, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist, and wherein did Christ's exaltation consist? So we're going to uh, read and, and answer and maybe discuss those, look at a couple of the uh, key texts, and then move on to question 28, making progress. Uh, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ, which might get a little bit uh, controversial. Who knows? So I want to just look up a few verses here. Uh, who would look up Matthew 2? I want to look at just the first couple verses. Someone else flip over to John 19, 19. 19, 19. Let's hear it. First two verses of Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and had come to worship him. All right. In what way is that emblematic of Christ's humiliation as king? You see the connection to king, right? Uh, magi, or as we sometimes sing, these three kings. Uh, coming from the east. They're coming to worship him. They're bringing him lavish gifts. Because he sh there are people who aren't his people. Like, his people don't even know about him. Okay, so certainly there's that. The people who should be worshiping him have no idea he exists, or once they find out that he exists, they try to kill him. There are a few who are of his people who know he's there and come to adore him, but they're nobody special. In fact, they're the very definition of nobody special, right? From the world's point of view. They're the smelly shepherds that wouldn't even be allowed into the temple services. So, yeah, this, this is a scene of humiliation when we look at a creche, a manger scene, and say, oh, that's so nice. Sure, it's so nice, and it's wonderful that Christ did that for us, but this is the beginning of his humiliation, certainly. Uh, so kings coming to worship him, even in that, it's not what you'd expect when you talk about the king of kings being born. Uh, he's somewhere where there's a manger, uh, often depicted traditionally as a uh, stable, probably not the case, um, but he's probably in a storage room, uh, in a house kind of built into a cave. It's dank, it's dark, it's, it's not anywhere that you'd expect to find 
the King of Kings. How about John 19, 19? Yeah. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So Pilate is acknowledging something uh, kind of more than he recognizes, I think. Why did Pilate have that written? To annoy people who wanted him crucified? Two ideas there. I couldn't tell you which one. It doesn't tell us. It tells us that they came to him and said, no, 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 take that down because... Because he claimed to be. Write that. We have a better... Aaron, do you like that? And people come back and like, I like the thing you wrote, but write it a different way. Um, he's like an annoying author. <laughs> hey, write, write, change that. Uh, and Pilate says... What I've written, I've written, deal with it. It's, again, a acknowledgement of his kingship, but the very opposite of how you would expect. It's probably, it's at best, it's just here I'm indicating which Jesus this is because there's so many Jesuses executed every year because it's such a popular name. This is the guy who was like king of the Jews. Um, and think about even Herod, right? What does Herod have done when Jesus won't say anything and won't do any miracles? Does he just say, yeah, take him away, I'm bored? Or does he have a little fun, so he's not bored? Yeah, they, they like, eat him, don't they? Crown of, of thorns. Crown of thorns, acknowledging him being a king. A, yeah, a, a robe, which is probably a, yeah, one of, uh, a faded old uh, centurion cape. They had these scarlet capes. They were rough putting that on the back that has already been flayed open with a Roman uh, flagellum. And then what else do they do? They, mock, like they bow bowed to down to him mockingly. So certainly he is king in humiliation. He's executing the office of king in humiliation, which is not a way that uh, most kings execute their office. They, they, they don't have to. And Jesus didn't have to, but he did. Uh, also, John 18, 36 uh, Jesus answers Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So Jesus is saying, I am a king, but because my kingdom and my kingship is different, uh, you're able to do this stuff because you've been given authority by someone greater than yourself. And perhaps this is providential, these kind of bookends around Jesus' life right? The, the Magi at the beginning and then Herod and Pilate at the end, powerful people acknowledging his kingship. But at no time is it really understood. So that's, that's in humiliation. What about an exaltation? What are some texts we can turn to? Almost anything in Revelation. <laughs> right. Yeah, Revelation is full of imagery of Jesus, the great conqueror, uh, 19, 11 through 16 is probably my favorite uh, passage along those lines. Someone want to flip there? Last book of the Bible. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Let's hear it. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's incredible. Here's a question then. If we read the book of Revelation, does it seem that Christ has transitioned from executing his office in humiliation and exaltation just to exaltation? No? Why not? Because he also appears as a lamb slain. Okay, yeah. So, look, behold the Lion of Judah. He can open the, the seals. He turns and sees the lamb slain. Christ bears the scars. There's a certain, um, certain level of eternal condescending, at least. Uh, I don't think he is humiliated anymore at that point. When you, when you come not on a donkey, uh, and people say, oh, look, yeah, king, yeah, we're all behind him. Uh, but rather on a white horse of war, conquering, you know, defeating your enemies until the blood is up to the bridles of the horses and stuff. I think you're pretty well exalted at that point. And yet the continued effects of his having been humiliated and humbled uh, are, are with him forever. And that is something that he did for us. Uh, even in executing the office of king, which seems like the one that would be all about him, right? Uh, uh, he shows us that a good king serves his people. And this king even dies for his people and is humiliated for his people and sets aside his own glory for his people. That is, that's about all you need to know about Jesus, <laughs> right? It's, it's such wonderful stuff. Um, how about then, uh, well, actually, is there anything else anyone wants to, to mention in, in terms of Jesus executing that office that we talked about last week, the office of king in humiliation and exaltation? On the exaltation one, he doesn't seem very approachable. Okay. Because when the one who's in the humility one, mm. not very approachable. Um, like John's reaction, yeah, is very different, right? Right. So John, who who when Christ was uh, just one of the guys, laid his head on his breast and put all his weight on him, like just. I, I, I can't right now. I, I need you. When Jesus then appears in his glory, John falls down like a dead man. Same response that the guards at the tomb had who didn't even know Jesus. What, what do you do with that? In that Jesus is exalted, high and lifted up, and you read all this stuff in the book of Revelation, we expect um, that this is his rightful state when, when we see him. You scared to see Jesus? Why not? Oh no. I'm looking forward to it. Do you think you're gonna fall down and become like a dead man like John did? And if not, what do you know that he didn't? Oh, we knew that he died for my sin. John knew that. He was there. He watched it happen. Oh uh, I want to praise him and thank him. <laughs> I right. think there's a reverence that you will bow down and worship him first. Yeah. And and but I think he will give his outstretched hand to you to, to come to him. Right, so we have two things here. One, internally different things are undoubtedly happening with the guards at the tomb who are there to keep the dead man in and with John. Both of them fall down, but one of them falls down out of absolute reverence uh, and, and 
respect and, and honor and worship to give glory to him. And the others fall down just because they're like, you know, like in an old movie. Um, like, like, you know, they don't have corsets on, but that armor is really restrictive. And, and then the other thing I think is that the way he responds in both the, that case, you say he stretches out his hand. What did he do with, with John immediately after he fell down? Somebody flip over to the book of Revelation. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day in Isle of Patmos. Let's see here. Revelation. I mean, mostly it's about like what kind of helicopters will be used in the last battle, but there's some of this great Jesus stuff in there too. Verse 17 says, But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Don't be afraid. Yeah. And then he tells them to write, which you can't really do on your face, so I imagine he got up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> his first thing he says is, Just do not be afraid. I heard a great. Easter sermon on this this year. Actually, it wasn't. I thought my sermon in here was better on Easter. But um, yeah, don't be afraid. Get up. And he, and he touches him with his right hand to, I mean, when someone's hunched over and you put your hand on their back, what do you do? You're comforting them. You're showing vulnerability to them because they're being vulnerable to you. So maybe there will be this initial unapproachability. But I think we will very quickly be very psyched that this unspeakably glorious and powerful God is for us and loves us. And then the other thing, real quick, is when Mary also falls down, she grabs onto him. So maybe there's a little less fear and a little more uh, sense of uh, just wanting to hold it. But, but again, he accepts her worship. And instead of being this kind of, oh, no, don't kill me, it's this, Oh, no, don't go. <laughs> she, she holds and he says, I got to go. You know, I'll see you again. Uh, but, but you can't hang on to me now. Uh, so I think that there's a big gap, even though falling down and becoming like dead men is a very specific uh, kind of description. And it fits both of these categories. What's going on in the heart is very different. Um, that you fall down in front of a king whether you expect that he, as the king of the enemy, is going to execute you, or whether he is the one you serve with your whole heart and soul. Well, I think also, you know, when he says that my father's preparing many rooms for you, and the idea that you're adopted into God's family, it's you're not separate from him in a way that you would be separate from an actual king on earth. Like you couldn't, like you wouldn't just, everybody doesn't live in the palace, you know, and they're not all related to the king. So you, I think that there's less unapproachability. Mm -hmm. Certainly, yeah. So we're, we're his brothers and sisters not, and co-heirs, not just his subjects. It, it kind of reminds me of the, the wedding story where they tell the guy not to sit at the head table, oh, but yeah. sit in the back mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and show reverence to Jesus and he will bring you to the front table. Right, right. Whereas those, and it's the Pharisees obviously in that uh, setting, you sit as close to the front as possible, how humiliating it is when you're told, uh, you know, I think of that scene in Gosford Park. Anybody seen that? One of our favorite movies. Downstairs in the servants' quarter, they all sit according to rank of their, whoever they serve upstairs. And there's this moment of, a sense when does a duchess outrank a baroness or something? And, oh no, I got to move back. <laughs> humiliating. Uh, and yeah, so, so to fall down on your face and be told, stand up. That's our position. 
to stand there and say, when I see this God, if he's real, I'm going to have a thing or two to say, and then instead to fall on your face because you see him. Uh, that's, that's not us. That's, they're both, every knee will bow, but every bow is not the same. And I, I do believe that even though it seems like Jesus with the kids bouncing on his knee is more approachable than Jesus with eyes like flaming fire uh, and feet like burnished bronze, I think ultimately we'll find that's not necessarily the case, that, that this Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, who is sovereign and transcendent and imminent and here with us, he will be as approachable uh, for us in eternity as, as Jesus was during his earthly ministry. Hi, Jim. Good to have you here, sir. Uh, so that's question 25. Let's read questions 26 and 27 and uh, perhaps discuss them. Uh, we've, I, again, I think kind of discussed them in the context of the last three questions already. 26, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a lowly condition, made under the law, undergoing the ministries, miseries of his life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. That is an awful lot of humiliation for a, the sovereign God of the universe. I like how being born is the first thing. Being born at all, because he is without beginning and without end, and to be born, uh, that's below him. And then, in a low condition, and it's almost like that's just a little... We always focus on that, right? He wasn't born in a palace, but in, you know, an a, a innkeeper's stable or whatever, however we try to spin that. Instead of saying, he was born. Like that, that, that very idea is, is humiliation. Undergoing the miseries of this life. Uh, Isaiah 53.3 is the text given there. And honestly, Isaiah, Isaiah 53 on a whole is one of the most important messianic passages in all the scriptures written long before Jesus uh, was born, um, undergoing the wrath of God. How humiliating that is. Not only is that painful and sorrowful and tragic, humiliating. Uh, and the cursed death of the cross. So becoming a curse, becoming sin, when he is the only one who ever lived who was sinless, in being buried, again, that's very humiliating, right? I mean... His body wrapped in this linen and stuff and all the people who knew him in life. Now, well, here he is and putting on some uh, myrrh and aloes and things and all, and all this and wrapping him and saying, all right, we'll come back and put his bones in a box in a few years. That was the plan. Uh, and then continuing under the power of death for a time. He actually was dead. He actually was in the place of the dead. Granted, he was preaching to the souls there, we're told, but he was dead. There was, on Saturday, his body was room temperature, and his spirit was where all the spirits of the, the dead before him had gone. That, again, is way below the station of a king of kings, who is God Almighty, did it for us. All of that. So I think we want to be on the lookout when we're reading Scripture. Because it's so commonplace to us that, yeah, Jesus lived a human life. We forget every aspect of that. We, I mean, we made a list of these things not long ago. 
right? All the ways in which Jesus took humiliation upon himself. And, and they included things like having to eat, having to learn, right? All, all of this stuff. And he did it for us. That is great news. Good news of great joy, which is for all the people. Uh, anyone having to add to that? Fairly exhaustive answer. I would add probably being mocked. That's a huge aspect of like being mocked. And remember, God will not be mocked from the scriptures. God laughs to scorn those who mock him. In this case, Jesus, he didn't make the exception. He just said, not yet. I will be mocked for a time. You will fake worship me and laugh and then punch me and pull chunks out of my beard and whip me and laugh more, laugh at my pain. That, that will happen and I'll endure it. All of these things are under the same category. Not, not just Holy Week, but Jesus, Jesus' humiliation begins the moment he's born. Or perhaps even when he's conceived. I don't know. Uh, 27. Wherein consists Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day and ascending up into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father and in coming to judge the world at the last day. That feels good to say all that, doesn't it? Am I the only one when I sing in Christ alone and you get to the verse where in the tomb his body lay and everyone kind of instinctively sings it more solemn and quietly. And then when you sing, but bursting forth a glorious day gets chills like every time. Um, and even in, in affirming the creed together, you know, on the third day he rose again. That is, oh, that is such a goosebumps moment. Uh, and we never want to lose our awe for that. That exaltation is what is actually due him. The humiliation and stuff is what he chose to endure for us, but that's way outside of the wheelhouse of the King of Kings, the Son of God, God himself. Any other thoughts on, on the exaltation? We've kind of had a half an hour on it, so. I think it's, this is beyond the um, scope of these two questions, but it's interesting to think about the ways in which, if, as we reflect Christ, what ways we undergo humiliation and what ways we would undergo mm -hmm. exaltation. Walking in the same, yeah. yeah, in the footprints of Jesus, for sure, yeah. Yeah, and, and like Jesus, the humiliation comes first. Right. Uh, and it feels like that's not fair. Infinitely more fair than it was for Jesus to walk through the, the, the humiliation. And to think about how he bore that as a better pattern for us than how most people. Yeah, yeah. That if we, I mean, J Jesus too. Um, that what's the passage? We do not consider these light and momentary troubles worthy to be compared to the glories that are to come. Jesus didn't consider those heavy and horrifying troubles of his uh, life and death to be worth comparing to the reward laid before him, which the reward was for us. He didn't need anything. I think another thing that's interesting in, in these uh, couple of questions is how we, I mean, going back to question one, we exist, we were created, chief end being to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When we glorify God, we are contributing to his exaltation, right? We can't actually lift him up any higher than he is, but we can shine a light on his glory. And much of how we exalt him and glorify him 
is by singing about, talking about, reading about, preaching about his humiliation, isn't it? When you worship Jesus, how often do we bring up the cross? Because it just shows us that he is a God. I mean, he is already by nature, by virtue of creating the universe worthy of our praise and owed our allegiance. But by redeeming us, he's doubly, infinitely, he, he, he could never be more worthy of our praise. And so by bringing up his humiliation, paradoxically, we increase his exaltation amongst us. What a weird religion we follow, isn't it? I love it. I absolutely love it. All right, if there's nothing more to talk about there, let's move on uh, to question 28. How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? And that question obviously has the assumption in it that A, Christ purchased something for us, and B, we can benefit from it. Uh, How? The answer is we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his spirit. When Bishop Butler lay on his deathbed, he called for his chaplain and said, Though I have endeavored to avoid sin and to please God to the utmost of my power, yet from the consciousness of perpetual infirmities, I am still afraid to die. My Lord, said the chaplain, you have forgotten that Jesus Christ is a Savior. True, was the answer, but how shall I know that he is a Savior for me? My Lord, it is written, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. True, said the bishop, and I am surprised that, though I have read the scriptures a thousand times over, I never felt its virtue till this moment, and now I die happy. There is certainly something purchased for us, and if we partake of it, it changes everything. Every moment, every triumph in your life, every huge tragedy, every mundane day in between, your death, everything is now reframed. Remember that term? <laughs> reframed in light of this that was purchased for us, this redemption. Uh, John Calvin said this, No man is excluded from calling upon God. The gate of salvation is set open unto all men. Neither is there any other thing which keepeth us back from entering in, save only our own unbelief. This is a guy who would be later than uh, maligned as, Oh, no, no, no. He says that you know, some people aren't allowed to come to Jesus. Only the hand-picked elite are. No man is excluded from calling upon God. The only thing that might stand between you and entering into his presence is your own unbelief. John Calvin. Um, If you want to know more about him, I will tell you all about him later. So what is redemption? Your debt being paid. Okay. That's to redeem someone is to, to pay their debt. That, that makes some sense. Like when you redeem a gift card. <laughs> if that helps, Zach. <laughs> I was going to say before you said that. <laughs> he, he took the penalty that had been ascribed to us. And so 
all of all of that guilt and sin came upon him and then through his shed blood and we've been bought with a price almost like we were slaves as slaves to sin before we were purchased away from that not almost but scripture says it is that we were slaves yeah um, and, and one might redeem a slave. Remember, I was just uh, shared that story about Adoniram Judson uh, buying that uh, Karen man out of slavery, that, that murderer, and saying, Jesus can save even you. And then being like, I don't know that Jesus can save even him. <laughs> and then sometime later, I mean, he's, that guy is one of the greatest missionaries who ever lived as far as number of converts and perpetual effect that his ministry has had. Uh, because Jesus can save anyone, uh, and that is good news. I think what we want to think about when we say the word redemption, we're, we're falling not just, though, on justification, which is what's being described here, but it's part of the meta-narrative of Scripture, right? Creation, fall. I've been hammering on this for like 15 years. You guys know this, right? Creation, fall, Redemption. No. Consummation. It's a four-act play. All right, I know now that I have permission to hammer on this again and again. People won't be like, oh, I'm bored of hearing that. Because if you, the, the few chosen, uh, don't remember it perfectly. Um, creation, obviously, God takes nothing. It's like, oh, look, there's some nothing. That's a good spot. It makes everything. And it is Good. Super good. It's very good. Uh, and then fall, Genesis 3, that goodness, that shalom, that perfect balance, that everything in its place giving glory to God as it should is fractured. And the will of man is bent away from God's will. The curse comes. Curse on uh, every aspect of creation. Not equally, but every aspect is now under, is a world under a curse. Uh, when we think about how we bore God's image initially, perfectly, meaning all of our capacities that we have, we listed those some time ago, um, whether it's mathematics or language or empathy or whatever it is, all of these godlike capacities were being exercised in a way that glorified Him. All of our relationships, that is man's relationship with other people, man's relationship with creation, man's relationship with his creator, all these relationships we only can have because we are in God's image, all executed perfectly. And at the fall, all fractured, shattered. Uh, and not that they're gone, not like if I were to throw a baseball through that window and all the glass falls, but like when I bought a new phone this past week, and before I could even get it set up, I dropped it face down and all the glass shattered a whole bunch. But it's still there. You can even turn it on and see uh, it's still there. The image of God is still there. It's just full of cracks and gaps and we've twisted it. We, we even take what we see, Romans 1, we take what we see in creation, what we know about God, and we twist it, pervert it, distort it to our own agenda so that we can make our own way, call our own shots, be our own God. That's the fall. Third act could have been 
the purge, right? The kill him with fire stage. And would God have been unjust? Nope. He's a holy God, and he is not a God who needs to suffer puny ants, sub-ant beings going, I am God! Uh, and he would have been well within uh, his own righteousness. To just go, all right, that... Let me make another one. Or I don't even need one. Instead, the story, the third act of the story is redemption, in which Christ, God the Son, comes to earth, thus beginning humiliation, and everything he does. So I would say redemption and the gospel are so overlapping of terms that you can, it's almost like when there's a almost full eclipse and you just see a little rim on both sides of the Venn diagram. Uh, there are ways you can use the word gospel that aren't synonymous with redemption and vice versa. But I've heard it put, uh, Bob Repay with the Lord now, wonderful teacher of the New Testament said, the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not beginning with Good Friday, but beginning with his birth beginning with him keeping the law perfectly that we could not keep, did not keep, frankly, most of the time had no interest in keeping, uh, and following through on what we could not, keeping that shalom in his life that was absent just about everywhere else, everywhere else on, on the earth, everything he does for us, that's the gospel, his life and death, his ministry, his resurrection, all of that is the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. That is how redemption ultimately manifests itself. But as you're reading through the scriptures, you actually have redemption show up in Genesis 3, right? Genesis 3.15, who can get there quick? It's right at the beginning. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the gospel, or the beginning of redemption, right? Um, so the story begins with creation, two chapters, fall, the first half of one chapter, and then immediately the promise of redemption. And we have, throughout the Old Testament, redemption as a thread running through. It is continually there. Where do we see it? The idea of redeeming. Let me ask you this. Why is it that Jesus is taken to the temple when he is a month and change old? Oh, because they have to redeem him. Why? Because every firstborn male has to be redeemed. And why? Is it the death of the firstborn? It's the law, but it goes back to the death of the firstborn. Right? Because... All of the firstborn sons were put to death in Egypt, but those who had the blood of the lamb on the lentils and doorposts of their home, the angel passed over, right? And now God says, all right, you will we'll have a, a process of reminding you by redemption, redeeming. All of these things that are here, Passover, Yom Kippur, uh, you know, putting your hands on the horns and confessing your sins, and then the animal is put to, all, all that stuff is pointing forward to Jesus, but it is not something that pops up out of nowhere. It's a thread throughout the entire Old Testament. It's a big, big, big part of the story. After it comes really only what's the epilogue, consummation, 
what we were reading in the book of Revelation, Christ coming back and consummating his kingdom, the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, the old being completely destroyed and the, the new earth being created and every tear being wiped away, that sort of thing. Um, unlike the return of the king, there's just one ending, and it's a marvelous ending. So we've talked then about redemption in monetary terms, and that may have already been in your head because the question and answer both talk about the redemption purchased by Christ. We just talked about going in and paying a temple tax to kind of buy back your own firstborn son in a sense. Uh, it's, it's, it was made so that everyone could afford it, but there was an act there. Why this language of purchase? Isn't that kind of crass? Go buy me something, right? I mean, the whole idea is a little bit crass uh, at first to me anyway. Does anyone else feel that way when you read about Christ purchasing redemption? Well, I think that um, when you think about it in terms of being slaves and then being purchased, or like your, your freedom is purchased, um, or the idea of somebody being in a debtor's prison and somebody paying the debt, mm-hmm. then it's not crass. It's something that you would be thankful for. Right, yeah. I have a question. Redemption. Does that mean, when I think about it, it means like I did something wrong and now I'm making up for that thing. But we're talking because a slave, usually they were just captured. Right, so the semantic domain of this word because of the biblical notion has come to me and like, oh, that's a story with a lot of redemption in it. Like a bad guy kind of becomes better and, and good. Um, and, and we kind of conflate it with sanctification and becoming better people. Uh, but in this case, it would be more like enter in the redeem code. Uh, you know, that sense of the word redemption, that initial sense. Um, and in the debtor's prison, I guess you had done something wrong. You'd taken out a bunch of loans. Your mouth had, and your hand had written a bunch of checks that your bank account couldn't cash. Uh, and we've done that in our sins. We've, we've written an awful lot of uh, checks that our, our souls couldn't cash. And so in being redeemed, maybe would the word ransom feel less crass? Because it's the same idea if we're in the debtor's prison, to purchase me out of there or to ransom me out. Now, I think ransom sounds better to us because like Steve is saying, if you're kidnapped, you probably didn't do anything wrong, right? If you're getting ransomed, you probably, they just, you know, they put a bag over your head, pulled you into a van and that's it. Um, but in this case, what we're being ransomed from and redeemed from is our own folly and wickedness. So in that sense, yeah, there are some metaphors where it it misses that aspect of it, but we have to remember that in our case, that is, that's the reason we need to be ransomed, redeemed and, and purchased. Right. And so like we're told not to keep a record of wrongs, but all of our wrongs have been kept record of. Right. This idea that you keep building up this debt of sin, you know, and you, you're forgiven of it, and then it's washed away, but you have it to begin with. So you do owe something. Yeah, yeah. When we say forgive us our debts, we're saying purchase our debts. It, and... That is what he did with his, with his blood. We're made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ. How? By the effectual application of it to us by the Holy Spirit. Uh, let's look at it. just a few little passages here, three of them. 
Who are three people who would like to read the Bible? Mimi, you like to read the Bible, don't you? Yes, I do. <laughs> Look up Job 33, if you would, verses 19 to 24. Maggie Joy, Matthew 20, 25 to 28. Stevo, 1 Peter 1, 18 to 21. Job 33, 19 to 24, Matthew 20, 25 to 28, and the first epistle of Peter 1, 18 to 21. Moving from the Old Testament to the very beginning of the New Testament, way to the end of the New Testament. We're going to see redemption all over the place here. Who's got Job? Oh, you do, Mamie. What do you got? Are you still writing? Yes. 19 through 24. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Wow. So, yeah, this is Elihu, uh, and he's in the midst of rebuking Job and strikes on something very important. Uh, the end of all of us, uh, Bishop Butler or whoever you are, uh, will either be like, wow, bust, didn't see it coming, or long, slow death at the, uh, illness or disease or injury or somewhere in between. And our only hope, because of our many sins, as he says here, is for someone, a mediator, to say, here's a ransom and be merciful. Deliver us from going down into the pit. That's redemption. It's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't pop up out of nowhere in the, in the New Testament. How about Matthew 20, 25 to 28? And, and by the way, Job also, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, I will look upon him. I, I myself, even after my skin is destroyed, I will look upon him. So there's a promise of a Redeemer that well, Israel that. hangs on to. Yeah, you see that in that whole story, because what, everything he lost is restored. Mm-hmm. Except for his family. Stuck with that same wife. <laughs> there's a hidden... A uh, chapter that's been lost to time where God's like, I got you a new wife. It's not going to tell you to curse God and die. <laughs> but yeah, no, the kids aren't. Maybe, maybe there's something to that too, by the way. All your flocks and all your herds and all your buildings can be replaced. But when his children die, he's not given twice as many children. Rather, he's just uh, replaced one for one because he already still has those children. Because this whole thing is based on the idea that there is redemption, there's one to save from the pit. He'll see those children again. Uh, the, to replace them would be very messed up thinking. Uh, 33, 19 through 24. All right, so Matthew 20, 25 to 28. 
uh, Jesus called, called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles Lord, Lord is over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so that, not so with you. Instead, whomever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the God, the Son of God, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The heading in my Bible there says, y'all ready to get served? No, it doesn't, actually. Um, <laughs> right, so, so the leaders of the Gentile, they're, they're rulers, they lord it over them. Not so this Jesus. This ties us right back into that king in humiliation and exaltation. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He, he came that, that just like, I mean, we see it in Barabbas, right? Barabbas is super guilty to the point where he is notorious. He's not just famous, he's infamous, right? Three, three amigos, anybody? But then Jesus is standing before them, and Pilate says, well, I have this custom every year this time. I give you back one of your prisoners. Do you want Jesus or Barabbas? Barabbas, the guilty, goes free. Jesus, the spotless, sinless Savior, goes and dies the death of a notorious criminal. That's all of our stories. We're all the Barabbas in that one. He came and gave his life as a ransom. And I think as soon as you bring the, his sacrificing his life in as the payment, the purchase stops seeming like a crass analogy uh, or, or something that minimizes uh, what, what's happening here. Uh, we see this in the... Uh, oh, hold on. I guess I'm sorry. First Peter 1, 18 to 21. I forgot to have someone read that. Uh, Steve? Yeah. Knowing, um, <clears throat> knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world what was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, and raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That sums it up nicely. Yes, you were redeemed, or the ESV translates that same word, ransomed, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with gold, silver, money, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That is what Jesus did for us. And we become partakers when the Holy Spirit applies that to us. Uh, if we wanted to find this elsewhere, we could look at the whole book of Ruth. Um, if you want to hear a great few discussions about it, me and Mimi uh, went, and, Mimi and I podcasted right through that puppy on MimiReadsTheBible.com. Just a little plug for you. Um, what, is, what am I referring to there, Mimi, that, where we see a redemption? Where um, Boaz was the kinsman redeemer, and he was able to redeem Ruth and, um, because there was no more male heir. And so he... Uh, took and said that he would 
marry her because the one who was first said, no, we mess up his inheritance. So there was one who, who came to be served, not to serve. And then we have the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, who is certainly foreshadowing Christ for us, who says, you know what? You're my, you're my bride. I can't, I, I, I'm going to, and I'm going to redeem you out of this situation that you're in. What a beautiful picture for us of what Christ does for us. I love that book. It's a, it's a great one. It's not just for girls. It's, it's, a, it's a good one for everybody. Just like Judges is not just for guys. Yeah. Um, girls who play like uh, Call of Duty and stuff. So let's stop there. Um, I think, I mean, when we speak in these terms, just recognize that it's biblical. The notion of the, we talk about the Old Testament economy of grace. We don't mean, you know, like a carbon credits situation, but with grace. That's what happened kind of in the Middle Ages, and it was counter to God's word. When we talk about the economy of grace, we mean the way in which payment is made. It was through sacrifices and things in the Old Testament foreshadowing Christ, but for us, it is Christ's blood shed once for all for all who would believe in him. Uh, and we will pick up with this same question uh, next week. Thank you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being our kinsman redeemer, for, for ransoming us, uh, for not simply coming to be served, which would have very much been within your, uh, your due, and that, that you as the creator and king of all things, Lord, are, are very much owed our allegiance, but rather you came to model for us being a servant, serving, seeking and saving the lost, and ultimately laying down your life as payment for, for our sins to, to buy us with your very blood. We are so thankful and we are so in awe of who you are and what you've done and what you continue to do in making intercession for us. Lord, what a mighty God and what a loving and merciful God we serve. We pray that you would be with us as we uh, worship you and open your word together in the 11 o'clock service, Lord, that we would leave this place not being the same, but being that much more made into the image of your Son. In your holy name we pray. Amen.